This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. Did you know that pulses like beans, peas, and lentils are not only super nutritious, they're also incredibly sustainable. Pulses have one of the lowest water and carbon footprints of any other protein source. That is why we love getting samples of local Pulse, who make just-add water meals like cocoa and buckwheat muesli or chipotle and lime black bean hummus. Order from localpulse.ca and have them delivered to your door. Make sure to use the code PAW20 to save 20% on your order. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Paw and Order podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Jessica Scott-Reed, and I am joined as always by my other co-host, Camille Lapchuk. Hi, Camille. How are you doing? Hey, Jess. I am, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing pretty well. It's, you know, the weather's nicer. I'm actually in Montreal right now for a few weeks. This is not a pleasure trip. It's to help a family member. Um, but it's so, it's so interesting being in Montreal right now because I had no idea stores are open here. Unlike Toronto, <laughs> which has been under like some form of lockdown since like October. <laughs> the stores mm-hmm. are open here. So I went to Home Depot and I did so like feeling fairly confident that it was safe because the case counts in Montreal itself have been under 200 for the last few days. Wow. And I got to say going to Home Depot felt like kind of like going on an international trip. <laughs> a vacation it was amazing. at Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. I looked at flooring samples. It was like the best thing that's happened to me in months. <laughs> oh God, that's great and sad at the same time. <laughs> I know it really is. It really is. And you've been yeah, getting so nice having the weather. Yeah, it's such better weather over here. Thank goodness. I noticed that you've got some like scorcher days, and I see you've been well, yes. barbecuing quite a lot. Yes, that's life on the prairie. So the last few days it's been like over thirty degrees, and then today we're going to start having a whole week of rain because that's you know weather systems just stay here for a week every time it seems. And I've been doing so much vegan barbecuing. Uh, I've been really mastering my uh, barbecue tofu, which has gone. Viral viral on Twitter because it just looks as I swear to you, it tastes as good as it looks. Yesterday we did some tofu shish kebabs. I did some baked beans on the barbecue. We've been doing all kinds of stuff because cooking outside is just so much better than cooking inside. Yeah, that's pretty cool, especially when it's hot out. Well, I'm definitely going to be trying your barbecue tofu. I've I've recently acquired the barbecue. I have not actually owned a barbecue in my past lives. I just never (laughs) had cause to. And so now I do. So I'm not sure how to use it, but I'm going to figure that out. And I think the first thing I'm going to try is your tofu. So I'm going to be calling you up for that recipe. 
For sure. Vegan barbecuing is underrated. I think a lot of vegans figure that they don't need one because it's for meat. Nope. Lots you can do. And you can follow me on Instagram for more inspiration. Grill those veggies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, and so the other thing that you and I've been doing lately, which has been kind of fun, is having some chats on Clubhouse, which is a cool yes. app. If you guys have not listened or checked out Clubhouse yet, just like a little bit of background on what it is. It's this like audio only app where you can go and listen in on conversations that people are having They're like not eavesdrop but they like advertise these conversations so there's all kinds of different groups and these groups set up rooms which is where the chats happen and they kind of have like a few sort of presenters who are quote-unquote on stage talking and other people can participate by asking questions and raising their hands and so it just becomes like a really cool discussion um i've listened to a couple awesome chats uh one that i think you and i were both on was the the chef from oh my god madison park 11 madison park restaurant 11 madison park yeah that was I think my first time ever going on Clubhouse and I was like, what is this? This is so exciting. What an inspirational guy he is. Yeah, he turned he's turning that restaurant plant-based. I think maybe Peter and I spoke about this on the podcast the other week, but it's a three-star Michelin restaurant. Yes. It's like the best restaurant in the world, people say, and it's going yes, all plant-based. And he was on there talking about the things he plans to do with vegetables and saying that the that cooking with vegetables disguise the limit and that, you know, focusing on animal proteins, it was such a limited way of cooking and and exploring cuisine. It was so inspiring and that was my first foray into Clubhouse and I was just like, "Oh, I'm hooked." And now I'm, I'm pretty addicted. We get invited, Camille and I, to do a lot of speaking on it. I chime in and listen as often as I can. Another cool thing to do on there is join the agricultural rooms. So there's one I've been, I've been joining called Women in Agriculture. <laughs> Because oh. we had someone, we had someone from there join into our sort of plant-based, vegan, strategizing sort of groups, and she piped in and started talking. Everyone was very nice, and so I, uh, I started following her and where she goes, and so now I'm the creep in the agriculture. You rooms. just returned the favor. <laughs> there you go. I'm learning. I'm learning. Well, that's fun. Yeah. So we've done a few kind of animal advocacy panels, which has been uh, really neat, and I know you've done yeah. some like more veg-specific ones, which has been cool. Yep. Lots so, of cool stuff. Yeah, one way to kind of stay engaged with this stuff is join the group Vegans Connect on Clubhouse, mm. which talks about these issues all the time. And you'll kind of get connected to, to different ways of participating in conversations through that. But yeah, I've been kind of enjoying it. It's a nice sort of like activity while we're all still kind of stuck at home. Yeah, it feels social and, and educational at the same time. And they have now uh, extended it to Android users, I'm told. was iPhone, just iPhone for a long time. So now Android users can get on there too. Oh, good to know. Yeah, and actually the thing about Clubhouse that you should know is that I think it's still invite only. So you need an invite from another member, which is not like super hard to get. Basically just like ask around and see which of your friends are on Clubhouse and then they can invite you using your phone number. So... Yep, that's right. All right. Well, we have a little bit of an announcement. I won't say a big announcement. It's a small announcement, but it is a pod order announcement nonetheless. We're actually going to be changing the podcast release day. So right now, this episode will be out on a Friday and we've always released on Fridays, but we're changing the release date to Tuesday for a lot of different reasons. So our next show is actually going to come out on Tuesday, May 29th. So you're going to get it just a little bit sooner than you're expecting. Yes, I think I think that's going to be a very productive change. Yeah, apparently it's a better day to release release podcasts on and it also kind of helps us with yeah. like the editing and recording schedule too so we'll see how it goes but uh, there's your update 
Yeah, look for us on Tuesdays. And also, don't forget to leave us a review. Add to our more than 150 five-star reviews. We had a a bunch of great reviews. Uh, One called uh, Fantastic Podcast by Liberation for All 108, saying, highly informative and enjoyable. I really appreciate how structured and varied the content is. Animal justice does such important work, and the podcast is perfect for keeping the public informed on the issues. Thank you so much for that great review. Oh, super kind. We appreciate it. Podcast uh, yeah. reviews help others find this show and help spread the word about animal law and animal issues. That's right. Now, another Hi. way to support us is by joining us on Patreon. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash order. And we've got prize tiers on Patreon, which we've mentioned before, but I'll say them again. If you donate $5 a month, you get a mailed card to say thanks. And you also get a paw and order sticker, which is, you know, a cute little laptop accessory. <laughs> for $20, you get your choice between a paw and order mug or a paw and order t-shirt. I have both. And I got to say, they're both great. Sometimes I wear the t-shirt and drink out of the mug. So do I. <laughs> and we also have t-shirts available for everyone, even if you're not a patron, uh, at shop.animaljustice.ca. But if you do support us at $10 a month or more, you get a 15% off discount for our online store. Very exciting. All right, news. We have a new Lots mink farm COVID outbreak in British Columbia. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that we're still talking about this uh, after so much evidence has come out. I remember writing about it in November when they weren't even testing for COVID yet, thinking that biosecurity measures were going to be enough to contain, which is what has obviously been across Europe uh, and in the U.S., such a deadly situation with uh, minks contracting and and then spreading COVID-19. And now we have it happening for a third time here in Canada. Yeah, it's very concerning because a lot of scientists have sounded the alarm bells about the potential for uh, minks to catch COVID, for the COVID virus to mutate inside minks and then Mm. be caught back to humans in a way that could potentially undermine the effectiveness of our vaccines, which we're all now getting and which has taken a real chunk out of this pandemic, which is a good thing. So it's troubling. This mink farm apparently has 25,000 minks, which is just an absurd number. Like it's hard to conceptualize. That's as much as many towns in this country. And uh, Mm. Jess, you pointed out before we started recording that of course it's mink breeding season right now. So it makes sense that that number would be quite high because there's so many babies right now. So it seems like they've found at least uh, a handful of minks so far which have this virus. They, they found it by random testing. Jess, the thing that's really troubling me about this is they have not been able to link this um, this transmission back to an infected worker so far. It seems mm-hmm. like they've tested the workers and none of them have COVID. So to mm-hmm. me, that starts to suggest that potentially these minks caught COVID from some wild animal source, which oh, again... I hadn't considered that that's very scary because they have into because these cages are oftentimes just out in the open and there's all kinds of wildlife that can access these animals through these open cages all kinds including other minks apparently tons of minks escape mink farms every year not because activists set them free just because the mink farms are you know slack in that way good for them i gotta say but uh you know when there's mink out there in the wild and they're able to access these cages where the other minks are kept that opens up this sort of loop of transmission which is just not a good thing so i don't know jess the bc government's been under pressure to ban these mink farms just shut them Mm -hmm. down completely it's too dangerous we know so much about the risk now we know so much about the welfare which is horrible of these poor animals and so far they have not done anything they've in fact let the breeding season go forward this year so i don't know if this is going to be the kick in the pants that they need to take action but i hope so 
I know activists have been working very hard. Um, there's a band for Farms BC on Instagram uh, that are working really hard to make this a well-known issue because as we know in Denmark, they did put a temporary ban on all mink farming there. Uh, they've had tens of millions of, of mink killed as a result of this. And now the news stories coming out of Denmark are horrific that they're having to now dig up the bodies of all of these buried mink because they're so concerned about now water contamination in years to come. That's terrifying and disgusting. And yet none of this is convincing the BC government that this might be a bad idea to keep doing here. Yeah, it's astounding. It's just a ticking time bomb. Oh, yep. All right. Next story. So really sad story out of um, Papanak Zoo in, well, it's near Ottawa in Ontario. It's just about an hour outside of Ottawa. And uh, a kangaroo named Willow escaped from the zoo the other week. She died. It seems, we don't have this confirmed, but it seems like she was hit by a car because some other motorists found her with injuries that were consistent with being hit by a car. And those kind people stopped. They did everything they could to save her. They called a veterinarian. Uh, the vet came out, but she was suffering from pretty serious injuries. And I think there was a lot of blood and visible bone as well. And uh, the zoo later released a statement that she had died. It's not clear if she died from her injuries, if she died because the zoo didn't want to pay for veterinary care, so they euthanized her, or if the vet decided that euthanization was the most humane approach. We don't know because we don't have access to any of that information because it all belongs to the zoo. But mm -hmm. you thankfully wrote a piece about this for the Toronto Star. Yeah, because it was very obvious once um, uh, some activists brought it to my attention and I started looking into this zoo. I'm not from Ontario, so I haven't heard a whole lot about it. But as soon as you start looking into it, this place is notorious. There have been news stories about animals being um, harmed or neglected and escaping in the past from this place. So this is just one of many stories. Um, I think a lion named Zeus had escaped a few years ago and had to be shot or just was shot upon the zoo's direction. Uh, there's been animal justice has done work with undercover footage showing animals being uh, abused there. So it's been a number of years and lots of different issues with this place. It's amazing to me that it's still even allowed to operate. But like you said in the piece, there really isn't anything to stop them. There's no licensing requirements in Ontario for zoos, which is mind blowing. And it seems like, as you call it, the Wild West for these roadside attractions. It really is. And you know what's so bad about this? Because a zoo can just set up shop without a permit or a license. Like I can't build a patio in my yard without a license or a permit from the city, but uh, the government doesn't care at all if I fill my backyard up with exotic wild animals who don't do well in captivity and then open it to the public for tours. Like it is just That's astounding. Crazy. Yeah, And yeah, as you pointed out, Animal Justice actually went undercover at Papanak Zoo in the summer of 2016. And we released that footage. It's available. Actually, we'll link to it in the show notes so you can see. But it showed all kinds of horrible stuff. Um, you know, in one shot, a trainer admits to beating a baby lion cub. In another shot, that trainer, that same trainer actually speaks about the death of Zeus, the uh, tiger that you spoke of a minute ago. Mm. Sorry, a lion. I think a lion. Yeah, lion. yeah, yeah. Sorry, Zeus is a lion. And uh, his comment was, yeah, you know, it was too bad. We had to shoot him. It was the best thing to do. Fucking cat was worth $25,000, though. Like, that's how they think of these animals. And repeatedly, yeah. they were being used as props, rented out for film sets and TV shoots. Uh, they took baby animals away from their mothers. So cats, um, I think, I forget now if it was a wolf or a coyote. I think it was a baby coyote or perhaps a baby fox. But there were a number of baby animals that they had sequestered from their mothers. And they were using them as props for selfies that they would charge visitors to take when they showed 
up to the zoo. And if you check out Papanak Zoo and check the tags on Instagram, location tags, you can see all these people holding little baby animals in their selfies at the zoo. It's really, really unfortunate. And I, I, you know, people in Ontario have been asking for zoo regulations for 40 years. Wow. The government is currently undergoing some process to develop regulations to accompany the new PAWS Act, which is our new animal welfare legislation mm-hmm. in Ontario. And if, you, if you're concerned about this, I would just urge you to contact your MPP and let them know that places like this need to be shut down. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine that this day and age that something like baby animal selfies are even still a thing. You know, I feel like I've researched and read so many articles informing people of why this is a bad idea. Uh, I can't imagine anybody's still getting clout on Instagram for holding up a baby tiger. Hopefully they just get negative comments. Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. All right. Well, in more captive animal news, more of the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. there's been a big story about the transfer of five whales from Marineland. I shouldn't say transfer. It's a sale. A sale of five whales from Marineland in Niagara Falls to Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut. So, oh boy, there's a lot to unpack here. This mm-hmm. whole issue has a long history. So as all of you listeners will know from listening for years, Canada banned keeping whales in captivity a couple of years ago, which is great. And we also put restrictions on exporting whales and dolphins to other countries. So you need an export permit to ship a whale out of the country. And that permit can only be granted if the purpose is for scientific research or if it's in the best interest of the whales. And the reason that condition exists at all is because everyone involved in passing that legislation wanted to make sure that if there was an ability to take the whales from Marineland out of there and transfer them to a sanctuary, then there should definitely be some ability to export them. So what we've kind of seen instead now is a situation where Marineland wants to sell off some of their whales and they want they wanted to give them sell them to Connecticut, to Mystic Aquarium. So the U.S. first issued import permits, which said that the whales couldn't be bred in captivity and they couldn't be trained for performances, which we were very happy happy to see. Uh, If they hadn't issued those conditions, it probably wouldn't have been a legal permit. And so then there was pressure on Canada to impose those same conditions because the no breeding and no entertainment performances rule would have made that consistent with Canadian law, which outlaws those two things as well. So um, Jess, I think what bothers me the most about this whole situation, it's not necessarily that the whales were transferred because I feel really ambivalent about that. Like it was bad for them at Marineland. Marineland has far too many whales. It's going to be really stressful for them to be transferred, but you know, ultimately something's going to have to happen with those whales at Marineland and they can't be released into the wild. So it's either a sanctuary, which doesn't yet exist, or another facility. So it's kind of this problematic situation. But Jess, I think what bothers me about this is the secrecy. So mm-hmm. unlike the U.S. process, which is so open. So when they were considering this import permit, they had, you know, all these groups were able to make submissions about it. They released the permit conditions publicly. In Canada, released none of that. Uh, they did this entirely in secrecy. They said that people would need to file access to information requests to get copies of the permits. Canadian officials haven't even confirmed if there's a no breeding condition on those permits. We just don't know. Yeah, I've asked. <laughs> I've asked. There's it's there's so much shadiness involved. Uh, I know advocates and activists who are involved in this particular issue are always sort of speculating on things that are concerning. And it's very difficult from a journalistic perspective and, and also from a, a legal perspective, I'm sure, to be able to do anything about it because they are keeping this so under wraps. They are. And there's no, you know, no responsibility or anything for them to disclose information publicly because it's a private institution. So it's just one more example of how you, you know, 
facilities like this are able to insulate themselves from scrutiny because no one's really watching and there's no public information. So yeah, they're just a business. They're just a business doing their business and their products for sale are animals. They're treated as commodities. In this day and age, how, how is that possible in this day and age and in this country? Mystic got these whales, and the day after they got them, there's a piece in the Boston Globe where they're already saying that they now do want to breed these whales, and they're trying to think of ways to get around the permit condition in the U.S. that bans them from breeding. And they're saying, oh, well, we think that actively breeding them is very different from just letting them breed naturally on their own. So I just think that really speaks to why you can't just rely on the U.S. condition. You actually need a binding Canadian condition, too, to, to stop this from happening. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. And so then there was also a piece in the National Geographic that that was uh, reported on from someone on the other side who sort of witnessed uh, and experienced these whales arriving in Connecticut. Uh, and it was a difficult piece to read. It uh, it really painted things in sort of a positive light, or at least it was sort of uplifting. They, you know, the reporter discussed that there was controversy around it, but it, it kind of felt like a, like a tale, you know, like a, like a, a story to be told. What did you think of it? Yeah, I had that same reaction and I've found a lot of the coverage unfortunate. It sort of paints this narrative of like, oh, the whales are being transferred for research and conservation purposes. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some research going on, but I think the real reason that Mystic wants them is because they can sell tickets to people who want to come see them, which of course is unfortunate. Um, yeah, so I found that piece a little bit frustrating too. Like I am quoted in it at the end, so I maybe shouldn't complain too much. My point was that I think this is going to be the last generation of captive whales in North America because we are seeing these breeding bans and these restrictions on permits, which is very good. But, you know, the glowing coverage is frustrating. Like the piece described the whales as being troopers. The aquarium staff were like, oh, yeah, the whales were such troopers. They were talking to each other during the transfer. And it's like, is that really the interpretation you're going to go with of vocalizations that they might make during a transfer? Maybe another interpretation would be yelling or fear. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But, you know, you speak speak of something that's kind of this greater issue is that they do have to go somewhere. And we know that um, in my work with um, the whale um, conservation efforts in the north of Scandinavia, where little white and little gray exist, the amount of resources and effort and time and space and money that went into saving just these two individuals was so immense. And we think about the fact, how many whales does Marineland still have? Dozens, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an open question, actually. We don't know for sure. There have been reports right. on Twitter that maybe 11 of them have died in recent, uh, in the past 14 months. That's not verified. That doesn't seem to be confirmed. And hopefully there will be some more information that comes out soon. But yeah, the, the broader point remains is that there's still dozens of whales at Marineland, and I can't picture that place operating forever. I don't think it's very busy anymore. I don't really know because, again, it's a private business. We don't have access mm-hmm. to its finances. But with public support for keeping whales and dolphins in captivity just like completely gone, Mm -hmm. the question remains what's going to happen. So I'm just hopeful that the Whale Sanctuary Project will have their facility up and running soon in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the amount of resources and the intense care that they put into building it is, I was poking around their website the other day and they've just done so many tests on the water, the current, the oxygen levels, all these things that I never even would have thought of. But it's, you know, it's quite a scientifically 
complex thing to embark on. So and and to ready the animals too. When I was researching about Little White and Little Gray, I couldn't believe the amount of time and effort it took to ready the animals to go to the sanctuary too. They were kept in another facility where they were learning how to hold their breath and uh, for longer in order to go deeper down to get food because living in a pool their whole lives, this is something they physically hadn't built up in their bodies. They had to build up uh, more blubber in order to be in the colder temperatures. So there was a lot of things that they had to learn just to even be in a sanctuary because the sanctuary is a natural state, even though it's all cared for and, and sort of netted in. It's a large space, but it's still natural waters that a lot of these animals don't have the capacity physically to live in without a lot of time and training. So that's something to consider too. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It just goes to show how complex it is to, to care for these animals and all the more reason that we shouldn't be allowed. Uh, we shouldn't be allowing any anyone to breed them because eventually yeah, there's going to be, be a generation. No. Yep. All right. And our last story is a piece in Global TV in Toronto. And I was glad that they did this piece. It was a very uh, important piece about why people should be adopting animals and not shopping. And they went over some of the interesting issues that happen when you treat dogs as a commodity. So Jess, of course, we've talked a lot on this podcast and other times about Mm -hmm. how during the pandemic, everyone wants a puppy or a dog or a cat. And treating them as commodities means the price for them goes up. It means that demand is outstripping supply. Yeah, the, the phenomenon of the pandemic puppy I've written about it for the Toronto Star during the winter because it just seems to be this ongoing problem. And what I ran into is that, and and as you talked about it, the global piece, or or they did talk about, was that the shelters um, aren't really full. There's a lot of people who are who are adopting animals, and so there's a lot of people left. And even to get from breeders now, they said in the piece that there's a a waiting list for reputable breeders. And so if you are buying a dog off of Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace right now, it's very likely coming from a puppy mill because there just is the, I quote, inventory available to come from better places. So what I wrote in, in the star piece was just wait, <laughs> just wait, you know, like there, once the pandemic is over, there's of course fears that there's going to be an influx of puppies and adolescent dogs who have been sitting at home with people working from home. And then once people return back to work, there's going to be all kinds of dogs being relinquished. Let's hope that's not happening, but um, there are some predictions. So just wait. Yeah. <laughs> There will be puppies and kittens in need in no time. Just wait. Just wait. Just hold your horses for now. Yeah. I mean, some people are already calling it the great dog dump and let's hope it doesn't come to that, but it's a terrifying prospect. So yeah, I mean, I'm glad Global covered this. I think all too often people assume if you're just, you know, getting a dog online, oh, it's probably fine. It's just a breeder. But in the reality, it's likely a puppy mill, either, you know, a domestic puppy mill or dogs imported from other countries who come from puppy mills. Um, Now, just to be clear, this is not in support of breeders. I do think that there's breeders who do not abuse animals. That's, you know, for sure. Um, I think there's a spectrum. And I think that when you look at, say, the Canadian Kennel Club, which is supposed to sort of oversee breeders in a way, they have a puppy list, which is supposed to reflect only quote, 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 unquote, reputable breeders, but puppy mills have gotten onto their list too. Yes, we know that. Yeah, we know that that's happened. So you just can't really trust those sources. And as a bunch of people at different rescue organizations and shelters uh, said in that story, the only way to assure is to adopt, not shop. Mm-hmm. And if you can't find what you're looking for right away, just be patient. Okay, and for our main topic today, we have an exciting interview with Dr. Charu Chandrasekara. 
Dr. Charu is the primary architect responsible for creating and developing the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods, which is the first of its kind centre in Canada, working to devise human biology-based alternatives to animal experimentation. As an experienced scientist, a former animal researcher, and a science policy expert, her work has been instrumental in establishing CCAM as an internationally recognized research centre. Dr. Chandrasekhara obtained her PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from the Faculty of Medicine, University of Calgary, followed by postdoctoral training at the University of Michigan Medical School and the School of Medicine at Wayne State University. During her 15 plus years of research in the area of, of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, she experienced firsthand the limited applicability of animal studies to human disease. Charu, welcome to Fawn Order. Yes, welcome. So excited to speak with you again. <laughs> It's so nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, you are doing some of the most impressive work for animals in Canada right now. So we're really happy to be sharing a little bit of that with our listeners. Uh, You have such an interesting background and story in terms of how you came to be doing this work now to uh, develop alternatives to animal testing. But you weren't always working in that sphere. And as we alluded to in the bio, you actually used to do research on animals. So can you tell us a little bit about that background and how you came to be where you are? You know, thinking back about it, I was just uh, thinking about that this morning as I was, you know, thinking about the podcast and everything. Um, It was exactly 10 years ago that I had that aha moment or the epiphany um, when I was working on mouse models of heart failure um, at Wayne State University back in the day. But what happened was during my PhD, I actually didn't do much animal work at all. There were times when I used some animal tissue, but I actually didn't kill the animals. I took them from another lab. But when I went into my postdoctoral training, which is actually an essential period that scientists have to go through so that they can become independent researchers, um, I went ahead and I selected labs that specifically did animal testing because I thought that was absolutely necessary because that's what's ingrained in you uh, when you're in graduate school. So I went into these laboratories. I worked on um, animal models of heart failure and diabetes, uh, mostly mice and rats. Um, There were some rabbits. And then I also worked right next to a dog heart failure lab as well. Um, And it was such an interesting journey because at the time, uh, this is like almost six years of work, um, I believed in it. I went in with an open mind. I mean, I didn't like claiming animals. I grew up in Sri Lanka. I was in a, you know, raised in a Buddhist family. So I always had compassion for animals, but I wasn't vegan. I didn't view animals as, you know, these beings that we should um, really respect as we respect other humans. But so I had to disconnect my beliefs from that. But as a scientist, I embraced all of it, believing that this is the way I was going to help humans, um, the way we were going to find uh, cures for diseases and all of that. But soon after joining that lab, it became really obvious that the data that we acquire from animal models don't translate very well to to human disease conditions. You know, when you think about it right now, we are um, the most technologically advanced um, in our society today, right? And when you think about the history of humans, this is the most technologically advanced we've ever been. And we're doing the most amount of research um, than ever before. And yet these breakthroughs in research labs don't make it into our pharmacies very often. And you've, you know, you know what I always say, 95% of drugs tested to be safe and effective in animals fail in human clinical trials. So I decided to walk away from uh, animal testing. You know, I just love hearing your story. Uh, I've had the pleasure uh, to interview Dr. Charo a number of times for different publications, We Animals Media's Unbound Project, uh, McLean's Magazine, Sentient Media. And I just never get sick of hearing your story. It's so inspiring. So
So why don't you tell our listeners uh, how this sort of epiphany then translated into you creating what is now the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods? Yeah, so the epiphany um, was when my dad had a, a heart attack in 2011 while I was working in a heart failure lab to find the cures for heart disease. Um, he had a heart attack and had the quadruple bypass. And in the end, I realized the work that I was going doing was never going to help humans like him. And so I actually just completely, I quit my job. I walked away from all of it and I joined the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, um, a nonprofit based in the United States. And I worked as the director of laboratory science. And at that point, I was exposed to an entirely new world of alternatives to animal testing, um, which I didn't know anything about being um, a, a scientist who, uh, in, in academia, because uh, animal non-animal methods are not very well known um, in the scientific community. But once I was exposed to this field, um, I quickly realized that there was a gaping void in Canada. There were many countries around the world with centers dedicated to the development of uh, development and validation of non-animal methods and we needed one in Canada. So I decided to just start it up myself with nothing. <laughs> um, with a two-page proposal, I walked to the University of Windsor and I, you know, proposed to the Vice President of Research and Innovation that we should do this and they were fully on board and so we got started. Wow, it's amazing to have such institutional support because starting something from scratch is really, really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> It's a huge monumental task and it's just so impressive what you've been able to muster with that institutional support and your drive and determination. So it's interesting what you said just now about how it's just not a very well-known thing in the research community that animal methods, sorry, non-animal based methods exist and are used and in fact can be more effective. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, first of all, why it is that we have such problems translating animal models over to human biology models and why you think it's not better known in the research community? So first of all, you know, when you think about why animal models don't translate, um, why they're not so applicable, it's very simple, right? We are not 70 kilogram versions of mice, rats, guinea pigs, rabbits, cats, dogs, sheep, or monkeys. We have our own biology. When you look at an animal, maybe on the surface, they may look very similar to us in terms of, you know, they could develop some of the same diseases that we do. But when you look at, at the molecular level, the cellular level, how we develop diseases um, and, you know, what the complications of those diseases are and how we respond to drugs, all those things are very different between humans and all these other laboratory animal species. Um, and that's primarily evolution. You know, we've been separated. These species have been separated by tens of millions of years of evolution. And there's nothing that we could really do to overcome that species barrier as it's known. And for researchers, honestly, this is the way it has always been. For the past 100 years or more, we've relied heavily, we've relied extensively on animal testing. Rodents are the gold standard uh, for chemical safety testing, for example. So this has been a culture ingrained in animal research. And so a lot of the effort is still primarily um, on animal testing. Um, and some of these new technologies that are coming up, you know, it's kind of seeping into, into um, the animal testing uh, paradigm, but it's still predominantly animal-based. Yes, you, you and I have talked so much about this. And, you know, our, something that always sticks out for me is how you always say, why are we focused on mouse biology instead of human-based biology to develop treatments and cures for human diseases? It just seems so black and white to me, but you're really de dealing with a very archaic system here that's very set in a culture of animal tests that requires these tests or so they think. 
So what is it that you're working on at the center that's really um, using human-based biology um, to really make this make more sense? So we have a number of different approaches, um, I, and there are lots of other technologies out there in the world. But at the center, I'm uh, primarily focused on creating 3D bioprinted human tissues. So I want to capture a microcosm of human physiology in a Petri dish. Mm. So we take these human cell lines and we combine multiple cell types. You know, in the human body, uh, if you take like the liver tissue, for example, there are so many different cell types involved. So I don't want to just take one cell type and work on it. So I'm trying to recreate that entire um, human liver in a Petri dish by taking um, these multiple cell types, combining them in a physiologically relevant environment. So 3D bioprinting creates this architecture that's very conducive to biologically relevant function. So um, I know you can see how I get so excited and you know, you I get goosebumps when you talk about this stuff. It just sounds so revolutionary. And I love hearing about it, you know, like organs on a chip, diseases in a dish. It just, it sounds so futuristic and so helpful for animals and people. Yeah. So most of the work that we're doing, we have liver in a dish, um, kidney in a dish and GI uh, gut absorption in a dish. We're creating a lung model that we got um, funding for recently. And there's a number of other models. And one of the things that unique things that I really want to do is to combine these models, right? In the body, um, all the organs are connected through circulation. So I'm kind of, you know, developing the same kind of thing here, combining the, the, the GI system with the liver and the heart model and the kidney. So you could follow the a drug entering from the GI system to the liver where it'll be metabolized and it travels to the kidneys where it's excreted. So it's, oh it's a how lot of work. How but... amazing does that sound? Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh, it sounds like someday you're just going to have an entire sort of like model of a human body right. and be able to predict like exactly what it does. That would be the ultimate goal would be to create these different combinations. So um, one of the other things, so that's primarily for drug testing, but then we're creating what we call disease models, disease in a dish, where our first project is diabetes. Um, and that's where we're connecting uh, all the organs responsible for controlling blood sugar. Um, so pancreas, skeletal muscle, liver, and fat tissue, adipose, and connecting them together to see if we can recreate. And honestly, some of the data that we have right now, they're so exciting. Exciting! Uh, I, I, I can hardly contain myself. Um, I've, I've created, you know, insulin resistance in my liver model. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. This is so incredible. And uh, I understand you're not the only center that's working on this. I understand there's actually an international network of centers with similar missions doing similar work. Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, and I'm so fortunate to be a part of this. So this is one of the newer ones, our center, um, here in Canada, because Canada had been lagging behind for a number of years now, forever, I should say. So the first Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing was established in 1981, when I was like six years old, learning to climb mango trees in Sri Lanka. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that they're going to be celebrating their 50th anniversary soon. Um, yeah, so that was the first one. It's at Johns Hopkins University. And then... And following that, in the 90s, the European Center for the Validation of Alternative Methods started, and then the U.S. has a center affiliated with the National Institutes of Health, um, and there are a number of other centers, you know, all over the world, in one in Brazil, Japan, Korea, um, and other ones constantly popping up. And there is an international consortium on alternative test methods, um, and so far there are six or seven centers as such. So um, Health Canada is the signatory to the Alternatives Consortium, the ICADM 
partnership, and I have a seat at the table there, um, which is really exciting. So this is now known as the Canadian Center, and I get to work with all these incredible scientists who are driven um, and who are really making a big difference in this field. It just feels like something that if if more people knew about the work that you're doing, you'd be, you know, getting such support, not only just because of the work you're doing to help animals and to further human health, but just knowing, you know, that stat that we always talk about that 95% uh, are ineffective when, when, when used on humans. And so I remember when we were speaking, the first time we met, we were sitting in Halifax at the first animal justice um, law conference, animal law conference. And outside was the CIBC Run for the Cure, which is a fundraiser for cancer research. And the best quote, it's one of my favorite quotes ever, is that she looked outside at these people in pink shirts saying, I wish I could tell them they're running from the cure. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) And just so much to say that there's so much time and resources wasted in this archaic model of, of that includes and requires animal testing. And that if just more people knew how to support the work you're doing, which would be sounds like so much more profound in the furthering of cures of human diseases. So how can people find you and support you? Um, So that's really interesting. So right now we're updating our website. We do have a website at the University of Windsor um, that where you can find us. If you just type in CCAM U Windsor, you will find a link. Uh, So it's just www.uwindsor.ca slash CCAAM. And we have some social media presence, but I've hired some young minds. I'm not very good at this social media thing yet but I've hired some young minds to to do some work for us so you can always find us there and you know this is the only thing I have to say the only thing that's really stopping me from doing all the things that I want to do it's money and it's really difficult to get funding and I'm going to quote um there's these reviews that I recently received from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research for a grant that I submitted um on one of these you know disease in a dish models they said that it's very impressive innovative very relevant and very timely. However, plan and animal study to validate the model. And key data on the toxicity of chemicals in animal models is probably required to justify a five-year research project. So when the system is like that, it's absolutely infuriating. Mm -hmm. Um, When the system is like that, then how do we make progress? And so to me, it's really important. And I really hope, um, you know, anyone who's listening to this, that they could work with whomever and in any way support us to spread the word, to to talk about the center, because I'm also hoping the federal government government will come through um, at some point. Um, you yeah, because that's these an other important centers. point, right? That the, a lot of these other centers you spoke about in the re- other parts of the world receive government funding of some sort, and you're really kind of working on your own. It, it, it's not an easy thing. I wake up every morning and it's, it's, it's a struggle. I mean, it's really nice. I'm so driven about this um, and I, I keep going, but it's very difficult. And I, I hope that, you know, we've had some amazing um, donors like the Eric S. Margulies Family Foundation that gave me a million dollars um, to kickstart all these things. But obviously in a field like this, million dollars can only go so far. Um, and we had to establish the lab and everything. So I would invite you ladies to visit our facility when the lockdown is over. I'd love um, to. 
<laughs> so that I would did be... get to visit very in the early days, but well, uh, not when things were up and running in a really exciting way. I think it was 2018, maybe. Well, we'll have to do a secondary pawn order on location. I think that would be a cool idea. I love it. I love <laughs> maybe it. Maybe a, a video of a you know podcast or something, <laughs> so you can see the the 3D bioprinter and all of that. Yeah. Um, but it's exciting. There's change happening all across the world, and I think um, I'm trying to bring industry, academia, and government um, sectors together so we could really create some unique, uniquely Canadian projects and make advances in this field and contribute to these international efforts in a uniquely Canadian way. Yeah, that's so important. And, you know, I'm wondering, like, it must just be so discouraging when you get that kind of feedback from the people who are reviewing these grants. And, you know, they see what you're trying to do, which is eliminate animal testing models. Yet they're asking you to use animal testing Mm -hmm. models to try to do that. These models that clearly don't work for a variety of reasons. What do you think it will take to shift that culture, to shift that culture at the granting institutions, too, who are responsible for so much of the funding that goes into this research in this country? Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, we often talk about this every time I go to these international meetings um, where like-minded people meet, this is one of the biggest issues, how we are always scrutinized um, during grant reviews and also uh, publishing our findings in scientific journals is the same thing. It's like, where's the animal data? Could you include the animal data? Um, It's part of the culture that we are so used to comparing, validating our biology um, using these animal models that it's such a big cultural barrier, but what it would require is a set of, you know, change of mind and and for researchers like me to be on those review panels because most of those reviewers, whether it's a journal or a funding agency, most of those uh, reviewers are only familiar with these animal-based methods and they have themselves, you know, been involved in it for decades perhaps um, and they're only familiar with this. So they're being comfortable in their own zone and comparing everything to what they know. But once we have these new people being general, you know, being... um, new people entering this field and taking places, you know, having a seat at the table at those review panels, they're going to contribute more and they're going to make these things, you know, make, they're going to make sure that these things will happen. Um, And this is one of the other things I really wanted to mention that I am developing academic programs at the University of Windsor to train the next generation of scientists to think outside the cage. And this is one of the the things that are, that's so unique about our center because most of the other centers are not affiliated with the university, so they can't necessarily, you know, offer degree programs and and um, certificate programs. So we are working on it. I have two courses at the moment and we're going to build that up to a master's program um, and have hands-on training sessions and all of that stuff. So watch out for um, a teaching laboratory that uh, I will announce soon enough. Oh, that's exciting. Um, I have heard you say in the past that you believe that this shift will happen in your lifetime. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that, you know, especially looking at what's happening around the world, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, for example, would um, they plan to phase out vertebrate animal testing for chemical safety by 2035. The European Union is is also working towards similar goals. So around the world, with everything that's happening and all, with all these technological advances, I mean, honestly, some of these in vitro, so some of these um, methods that we have, like organ on a chip and organoids, they are so complex and we can manipulate them in ways that 
that we could never do with with animals. So these technologies are going to take over. It's a matter of, you know, getting to that threshold, building that confidence that these methods are so good. If not, they're better than animal models. And then educating the broader scientific community and changing some of these uh, sort of, you know, century old um, practices to shift away from this failing paradigm. I think it'll happen. Uh, I'm super excited. I want to see it in my lifetime. Well, I'm glad you brought up what the U.S. and the EU are doing because it's something that I think about a lot. And of course, being a lawyer, I've got to bring it back to law and policy. I know you're a scientist, but you have worked extensively on policy issues, particularly with your role with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how Canada stacks up compared to other countries in terms of two things. First of all, commitments to phasing out animal testing. And when we talk about testing, we're usually talking about product testing, uh, regulatory safety testing. And second of all, what you see the shortcomings with oversight over animals and labs in Canada? I mean, those are very interesting things. Every time I go to the European Union, people always ask me every time I give a keynote speech out there and I talk about all these, you know, things that we don't have in Canada, everybody always asks me, why don't Canadians care? So we don't have a federal oversight over animals in research. And I think you've mentioned this before in your podcast. Um, And we don't have legislation phasing out animal research. And I think maybe we're beginning to see some changes in this area with the the Canadian Environmental Protection Act um, preamble that we have at the moment. So hopefully we could commit to reducing and replacing animals in that area. Um, But I do have to give some credit to um, colleagues at Health Canada who, even without a legislative framework, are participating in these um, international uh, consortia and these international work groups to develop and validate these methods and to adopt them into these regulatory decision-making processes. So I really believe that we need to change that. Um, we've seen tremendous change in the European Union as soon as these legislation, um, legislative changes came came about. You know, the fact that it took us three years um, to debate this in the Senate, uh, it's, it's hard to believe, right, when it comes to the Cosmetic Safety Act. I know, and that um, was such a minor issue in the scheme of things. We hardly exactly. do any cosmetic t- testing in this country, and even that didn't pass. And that's the thing. That's what I don't really understand because we have presidents here, right? There's an entire, you know, bell laid out document um, from the European Union that we just have to copy it and adopt it to fit our legislation. And we couldn't do that. So it's kind of discouraging in a way to see that we're so very slow um, moving in this direction. So we definitely need the legislative changes um, because we do not compare um, well at all. Um, even for other, you know, nations comparable. And even with animal use, think about it. The European Union, they use about 9.8 million, I believe 9.5 or 9.8 million on their last animal statistics report. All of European Union, which is like 28 countries, they use 9.5 million or 9.8 million animals. We used 4.5 in Canada for one country. So it doesn't make sense. We need to actively um, promote the use of these new technologies. Yeah, this is the way of the future. Well, I thought maybe we'd wrap things up by just giving listeners two really concrete ways that they can help be part of the solution and support your work. So first of all, well, actually, there's three ways. First of all, you can make a donation to CCAM. CCAM accepts public donations. And I am going to make a substantial donation when I get my second vaccine. Uh, We did an episode about vaccines a few weeks ago. And, you know, of course, I'm getting it, but I'm not happy about the fact that it's tested on animals. So to try to mitigate my guilt about that, I'm going to make a donation to you to try to be part of the solution. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I think I would I would do what I can, too. I think 
think it'd be a great thing to encourage our listeners, whoever is in a position to do it. If you're getting, when you're getting the vaccine, this would be a really great way to sort of offset, I feel like. Yeah. It's kind of like buying carbon exactly, off. That's what I was thinking too. It's, it's an animal <laughs> testing offset. It's something we can feel like we're doing to at least make things a little better in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you, ladies. That's, that's, that's really thoughtful. Tears in my eyes. That's a great idea. And I want to mention that the University of Windsor is a registered charity. So you will get a tax receipt. That's even better. But you know who has a lot more money than me or Jazz or any of our listeners is the government of Canada. And they are the ones who should really be funding your work, Charu. So listeners, if you are compelled by that and you want to see this this institution do more work, uh, ask your MP to tell the government to fund Charu's work. Um, It's a simple ask. It's, you know, in the scheme of things, giving a few million dollars to this initiative or, you know, tens of millions would be even better. It's really just a rounding error in the federal government's budget. It needs to be done. So I think that's important too. And then the final thing is, Char, you alluded a moment ago to the CEPA reform. So that's the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And as you mentioned, really helpfully in the preamble, we were so happy to hear this. And we spoke about this a few episodes ago. The government did say it's committing to reducing the use of animal testing. So that's great. It indicates where their heads are, the directions that they're going in. But unlike the EU or the US, there's no targets and there's no binding commitment to doing so. So if you're listening and you think that's important, you can ask your MP or the minister or the prime minister or whoever to include binding commitments in that process as well. Great idea. Very important. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Charu, for joining us. Your work is an inspiration to me and I know for sure to Jess as well. Always. I have such, if if you haven't noticed, I am a fangirl. I am a fangirl. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's so nice to connect with you both. And um, when the pandemic is over, obviously I do want you to come and see our facility. You know, I started when Camille visited us in 2018. It was just a single small room there, which is now where I have the Enerdomage virtual dissection table. But now I have almost a 3000 square foot facility uh, equipped with state of the art, you know, cool things. (laughs) And so I can't wait to to host you there and to um, walk um, in this journey together. Oh, thank you. And thanks for all that you do. Heroes and Zeros. All right. And now, Camille, it is our favorite section of the podcast, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right. So, okay, go. I'm going to do the hero this time. I feel like I'm always doing the zero. Okay, so our hero this week uh, is the UK government for publishing an action plan on animal welfare. There's been a lot of media coverage of this. Um, the plan includes a lot of different things. Uh, a lot of it is for stuff that's going to be happening hopefully in the future so i you know i think it's good to keep an eye on these things i'm I'm always a little bit cautious to be celebratory of things like this we've seen these kind of things happen before uh but this plan is is set to include uh some really exciting things including um a new committee on animal sentience that will report on government decisions hold ministers accountable for animal welfare and policy making and apply higher maximum penalties for animal cruelty which all sounds very good um animal welfare will also be considered and better protected in trade negotiations. Uh, And a big one uh, that's getting a lot of attention is live export of animals for fattening and slaughter will be banned. Uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest 
parts of this, um, along with primates no longer being permitted to be kept as pets, uh, and improving zoo standards, which is always a good thing. Um, like I said, I, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, there's a lot of gaps in this, but a lot of a lot of promise. It is, you know, concerning animal welfare, so we have to keep that in mind. What are your thoughts on it, Camille? Yeah, I was excited to see it too. And, and let's just keep in mind that the UK is starting from a really good baseline because they already have standards that are just like above and beyond literally anything that we have in Canada. Like the only area I think that we're beating them in is the shark fin ban and the whale and dolphin ban. Mm. Pretty much everything else is just no contest. So I loved the Animal Sentience Committee, which is super interesting to me because one of the things that UK is, is doing is it's enshrining animal sentience into legislation. And to me, that's largely a symbolic move when countries do that because we already accept that animals are sentient. Otherwise, we would not have animal cruelty legislation. The premise behind that is that they can feel. So I think the sentience moves are mostly symbolic, but this new committee that will report on government decisions and hold ministers accountable for animal welfare and policymaking um, functions, I think that really operationalize this commitment and make it something concrete and tangible, which I think is really cool. Like, can you imagine, Jess, if, say, we had the sentience committee and every time the agriculture minister was like, oh, I'm going to give a billion dollars to the dairy industry, the sentience committee was like, oh, what about mother cows? What about the babies? What about the pain and suffering they experience? That would be pretty I mean, cool. That sounds amazing. It's it's li literally like having a voice for the animals right there in the government, right? Like that's kind of what we've always wished for. I hope it turns out to be as effective as it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exciting. I'll be watching this. I think the other really noteworthy thing about this is that the UK doesn't have some like left-wing, super progressive hippie government. This is a conservative government and these are conservative commitments. What I love about the UK is that all parties are so committed to animal welfare. They define themselves as a nation of animal lovers. Uh, you consistently see parties trying to outdo each other on animal issues, which I just love. And I think we could introduce a little bit of that healthy competition into Canada. Looking at you, Canadian politicians. <laughs> good call. Good call. <laughs> All right. And our zero this episode is the Nova Scotia Department of Environment. So there was a story, Jess, uh, earlier this week, last week, about some dead calves who were found in Nova Scotia. These passersby found them uh, uh, off the side of this like backwoods rural road, a place where you're not expecting to find dead calves. And there's a few circumstances that make this really sketchy and concerning. So first of all, one of the cows at least had an ear tag hole in his ear, so likely came from some sort of farm. It's actually an offense to remove an ear tag with Right. like reporting that information to the CFIA. So that's a problem. Um, there was a third cow apparently found about a year ago. So let's let's say that there were three cows in total. And, and I should say calves because they were quite young. They were also all male from what we can tell. Mm -hmm. So this suggests to me that these are potentially calves who were byproducts of the dairy industry. Because of course, mother cows are impregnated to make them produce milk. And the males who are born can't be used for dairy themselves. So they're either killed for veal or sent off to be disposed of somewhere else. It makes me wonder if that's where these cows came from and how they died. Um, oh, the other thing to note is that one of them had a rope around his neck and one had a rope around his leg. And it's really strange. So... The people who came across these calves called Nova Scotia Department of Environment because they have exclusive jurisdiction over enforcing animal welfare with respect to farmed animals. And Nova Scotia Environment's response was like abysmal. They basically refused to even take a report. One of the witnesses said that they made him feel like he had done something wrong by calling and reporting. Wow. Yeah, it was really unfortunate. So Jody Lazar and I, Professor Jody Lazar of Dalhousie's uh, Schulich School of Law, we spoke on CBC Information Morning, the radio show in Halifax about this earlier in the week. 
and kind of called them out for not doing more about this. And we're sending a follow-up letter too. And I just, you know, I just hope that agency takes this job a little bit more seriously in the future. Again, if we, if this was puppies, imagine it was, if it was dead baby puppies on the side of the road with ropes tied around their neck, this would be, you know, headline news. It would be people up in, in uproar, but because they're farmed animals, again, more proof they're treated like commodities. Yeah. And, and officials apparently think that they can just get away with not doing anything about this because nobody's going to care. But I think people actually do care. We care. We care. No we care. Government. We care. <laughs> so you're a zero. All right. And that's our episode for this week. Hope you folks enjoyed it. We will be back again uh, with our next Tuesday release date, as we promised. So we'll see you then. See you then. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!